Let's open up now to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in our Bibles. If you don't have one, run to the book table right now and grab the first one you see if you'd like. Acts chapter 2, we're looking at verses 42 through 47, finishing up the second chapter, finishing up our study of Pentecost that we've been looking at for weeks. The title of this message is The Discovery of Meaning. In this text, we will see the model for what the church does. The model for what the church does and is about. And we will also see in this text what devotion looks like for the Christian. What a devoted life to Jesus looks like for the Christian. And in both those things revealed in this text, the model for what the church does, what devotion looks like for the Christian, we will find answers to deep human longings. Hence the discovery of meaning. So we'll start in verse 41 for a little context. You'll remember Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And then we pick it up in verse 41. I'm working from the NIV. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading and hearing preaching of and receiving of your word this morning. We ask that you would give us understanding of your word, cause our hearts and our minds to comprehend what it is you're saying to us, what you're calling us to, and most importantly, what you've done for us and who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live in light of that. Help us to comprehend these things, please, Lord. Make us attentive now. We rejoice that your word is alive and active as it goes forth, doing deep things in our hearts. We pray together that you would please help me by your Holy Spirit to teach and preach now in a way that is humble, faithful, and helpful. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes we feel in life like we're just kind of spinning our wheels. Anyone know what I'm talking about? The, The endless cycle of work, of responsibilities, of schedule, of upkeep, that endless cycle. Sometimes we just feel like we're spinning our wheels and having to do all these things and meet all these obligations. I mean, this is tax week, right? So taxes are due soon. So we're doing, my wife and I are working on our tax stuff this week and I'm like, didn't we just do this last year? Why do we have to do it again? Every year, all this stuff and just all this upkeep. And then the same week, I got a notification in the mail that my Jeep needed to be smogged again. I have an awesome Jeep. I have a 1986 CJ7. Last year that they made the CJ six-inch lift, 35-inch tires, lockers front and rear, roll cage. It's super bad. Um, But I got this notice that like, okay, it needs to be smogged again. It seems like I just did that, right? It seems like I just smogged the vehicle. Now I get this thing and I'm feeling like, 
taxes and work and responsibilities and smogging. Life just feels like the spinning of wheels sometimes. Just the busyness of it. Maybe you're not so busy. Maybe you're in a season where you're not that busy or you're retired and yet you're looking for things to keep yourself occupied and going and keep yourself involved in something. But it's important in all that busyness and what feels like the spinning of wheels and endless responsibilities and all that. It's important once in a while that we stop and we wonder, we ask ourselves the question like, what is this all about? You get lost in the tax papers and the smog and the responsibilities and work. But what is this all about? What is the meaning of all of this? And how do I discover deeper meaning in the midst of this? And if we take the time to pause and think about that and ask those sorts of questions, we realize that we as humanity have deep longings that are never addressed or met in just the mundane busyness of normal life. Deep longings that go unmet and unanswered in the busyness of life. For example, we as humanity all have deep longings for truth. I mean like true truth, like real truth, right? We live in a culture where we're inundated with fake news and foolish news and fooey news and all this different stuff. And we find ourselves wondering like, what is truth? And we live in a postmodern culture. Right, where there's all these competing claims for truth. And a postmodern culture says, well, what's true for me is not necessarily true for you, and what's true for you is not necessarily true for me, and if that's your truth and that's true for you, that's cool. I don't know what's true. It's all true. And that leaves us with a restlessness in us and asking the question, actually longing for what is truth and needing to nourish ourselves and our souls on what is actually true. We all have that deep longing. We all have a deep longing for connection. And we live in a culture that seems incredibly connected, but I would argue actually causes us to be disconnected, right? With social media and all these different platforms, we feel like, gosh, I could be connected to all these people at once and everybody can see what I'm doing all the time and I know what everyone else is doing all the time. And if I like their posts, then they'll like my posts and then we like each other. We're both following each other and we're always gonna know what's happening on. Every time I go to the store, I'll put it on Facebook. Everybody knows. And we're hyper-connected, but I would argue that we are disconnected. That instead of answering the deep longing in the soul for real connection, it leaves us emaciated in the area of connection. That it doesn't actually scratch that itch. It's superficial. We all have that deep longing for connection. We all have a deep longing for forgiveness. To be forgiven and to be helped to forgive others. Because we all know what it is to feel shame for what we've done. And to have a longing to be released from that. We also know what it is to feel bitter about things that were done to us. And to have the inward wish that we could release them. And so ourselves from the bondage of unforgiveness. We all have this deep longing for forgiveness, to receive it and to forgive it, to deal with our shame and our bitterness. And we all have this deep longing for a greater authority. You see, humanity has bought the lie that what we want is autonomy. If I could just be the captain of my own destiny, 
We all think that we want autonomy and we don't want to have to live under any other authority or rules or expectations and that what true meaning looks like is to get out from under those and create my own future. When in reality, we find that what we really long for is to be worshipers, to have a greater authority and power to whom we answer, under whom we exist, by whom we are cared for. And our autonomy and everything that we try to do to shirk this greater authority just leaves us restless and empty. It never scratches that itch that we actually have to be under a greater authority that cares for us. And these things are common to humanity. And we realize, I think, at times, as life sort of hums along at this fast clip, that what we need is reorientation around meaning. To move away from the superficial from all the noise of claims out there, from shame and bitterness and autonomy, we need to reorientate ourselves around meeting. And what has just happened in the text, as we saw in verse 41, is that the day of Pentecost had come, the Spirit was poured out upon the church. There were lots of questions about it. What is this? What does this mean? How do we understand this? And Peter stood up to preach about it, and he preached about Jesus crucified and resurrected from the dead. And afterwards, people said, well, what do we need to do to be saved them? And Peter said, repent of your sins, that you might be forgiven of your sins. And we saw that 3,000 people did that in verse 41. 3,000 people got saved that day when Peter preached at Pentecost. And now you've got these 3,000 people together that have just become the new community of Jesus. And in our text today, they're trying to discover what does it look like to follow Jesus together? How are we to live as the people of God, as the church, the collection of God's people? And so they begin to reorient themselves around things that are meaningful. And we're shown what those are in verse 42. We read it already, but we'll put it on the screen and we will enumerate the ideas. It says they, right, this new community following Jesus, 3,000 plus people, the church, devoted themselves to number one, the apostles' teaching, number two, fellowship, number three, the breaking of bread, And number four, prayer. And I want us to see that these practices of the early church are scratching the itches that are common to all of humanity. They're getting at the deep need for meaning. For example, the apostles' teaching addresses the search for truth. Fellowship addresses the human desire for connection and connectivity. The breaking of bread, and in this context, it's the Lord's Supper, it's communion, the cup and the wine, or the the bread and the wine. It addresses that deep need for forgiveness and brings us into the joy of being forgiven and forgiving others. Prayer addresses the longing for greater authority. Now, the church, it says in verse 42, devoted themselves to these things. Again, they're trying to discover what does it look like to be a community following Jesus? What does it mean to be God's people now, all of us in this new thing, 3,000 together? They devoted themselves to these four things. In the New American Standard Bible, we read, they continually 
devoted themselves. Continually is important. The reason that that's there in the New American Standard is because that word devoted, that verb devoted, is in the present tense in the Greek. And in Greek grammar, that means that it was an ongoing action. So these weren't punctiliar. There weren't things that they did one time when they weren't occasional. They weren't things they did sometime. These were things that they did all the time. They continually devoted themselves to these things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And what they're doing in devoting themselves to these things is they're developing new rhythms in their lives and in their life together. They're creating new disciplines as Jesus followers. And they're beginning to live according to their values as the church. Rhythms, disciplines, and values that for them cultivated meaning in light of what they now knew about Jesus, that he was the promised Messiah who gave himself in our place upon the cross, who rose from the dead that we might have the forgiveness of sins and new life and abundant life and ultimate eternal life. In light of what they knew now, knew now, now knew, now knew now, in light of what they, in light of that, they were reorienting themselves around practices that had meaning. This is what the church does. This is what a church full of the Holy Spirit does. Remember the context. Pentecost has come. The church was full of the Holy Spirit now. And this is the way that they begin to live, corporately and individually. I want you to notice that they did this together in large groups and in small groups. Right? We read at verse 46, if you want to look at it, that they continued to meet in the temple and then they met from house to house. So the church began to gather in a large context and then in smaller broken down context. In the temple, there in the courtyards, they would all get together. And when they were getting together, they were doing so around Jesus, right? They're acting, they're living out in light of what they now know about Jesus, the promised Messiah who died for them and rose from the dead and promised them life. And they've come into that life by repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus. So now there's a reorientation and there's this internal pull in them by the Spirit of God that says, we all want to be together like we do on Sundays. So they were all together. They would meet in the temple there. And then it says that they met from house to house or in homes. And there they fellowship together. So it's always been the rhythm of the church. It always ought to be the rhythm of the church to have this large gathering. And then we're like, gosh, it's not enough on the Lord's day. It can't just be this one time that we all get together. Plus there's so much that you can't do in this large gathering. We want to do it throughout the week in the smaller context where we can really get into each other's lives. Let's meet in homes. So this is why in churches, it's so popular to have community groups or home groups or life groups or whatever you want to call them. We've called them everything at this church. And at different times, we've had those. We do not officially right now orchestrate home groups, meeting in homes. We hope to in the fall. We know that that's a itch that needs to be scratched. We know that that's a biblical thing. But let me give you a word of advice at this juncture about your church. Don't wait for your church to organize junk. You don't need to. 
You're a Christian who is reorienting her or his self around what you now know about Jesus. And part of that is I want to get together with God's people en masse because that's what we do. And we want to do life with each other in one another's homes because that's what we do. And that's already going on in our church organically, organically, organically. People are meeting together and praying in small groups. They're having meals together. They're studying the Bible. Some people are working through what was taught in the sermon to apply it to their lives. Listen, I can guarantee you that Peter, James, and John were not administrating home groups for 3,000 people the first week of the church. There's no way that was happening. No one had a spreadsheet and they're like, okay, so out in Judea, we're going to meet in these homes and then Jerusalem here. Nobody was doing that. This was an organic thing of God's people being who God's people are. So I encourage you to do that, right? And listen, Christianity is the only place where it's completely kosher to invite yourself to other people's homes because we're the body of Christ, and we love each other because Jesus loved us. So it's the, and, then, and then the person that you invite yourself to their home, they are obligated to say yes. Because to say no would be so unchristlike. Remember, Jesus went to Zacchaeus. And he's like, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch. Jesus is our model. Roll up on somebody and say, hey, bro, I'm coming to your house Tuesday night for dinner. Let's fellowship, do some Jesus stuff. And grab some friends and invite some friends. I'm telling you, in Christianity, it's the only place you can do that. But the church met in large gatherings and in small gatherings. Those are important. And what this is, is a reorienting around practices that provided meaning. And what they truly are, this is very important, is a reorienting around Jesus. The practices are pathways to more Jesus. They are not an in and of end. They're not an end in and of themselves. The practices, teaching, fellowship, Lord's Supper, and prayer, are pathways to more Jesus. The early church was intensely Christocentric. Can you say that word? Christocentric. It means Christ-centered. They wanted to be Christ-centered. They realized that they had been delivered, saved, they expected, hoped for, waited for Messiah had come, that they had new life. They couldn't see anything bigger or better in this world to orientate themselves around other than Jesus. So they wanted to be intensely Jesus-centered. And these are the ways that they did that. These are the ways that they stayed Christocentric. And so this becomes the model for ministry, what the church does. And this is what devotion in the life of individual believers looks like. So let's take a closer look at each one. First of all, the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching would have been teaching from Holy Scripture about Jesus. That's what it would have been. Teaching from Holy Scripture about Jesus. That's what Peter already did in his sermon in the preceding verses, right? People were asking, hey, what is this all about? And he talked about Jesus from Holy Scripture, the Old Testament. That was their scriptures, right? He quoted the Old Testament several times. We will see several more sermons in the book of Acts, and all of them will be that, talking about Jesus from Holy Scripture. The reason the early church would have done this is because they would have taken their cue from Jesus himself. After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, two dudes that were there in Jerusalem were headed out of town 
all disappointed. And they're on the road to Emmaus. This is found in Luke chapter 24. And Jesus appears to them mysteriously. They don't recognize him yet. And Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? Why are you all bummed out and stuff? And they're like, well, you know, we've been in Jerusalem and haven't you heard? How do you not know this? There's this guy. We thought he was a Messiah. He died on a cross. We thought he's going to rise from the dead. Doesn't seem like it happened. And they're headed out of town. And Jesus wants to reveal to them the truth. And how does he do it? He talks about himself from Holy Scriptures. Luke 24, it says this, then beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets, that's a Jewish way of saying the whole Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And the apostles would have taken their cue from this. What are we going to talk about now that we are the community trying to follow Jesus? Now that we're the church, we're going to talk about Jesus. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it from the scriptures. When these men were wandering and wondering, Jesus didn't give them clever cultural commentary. He didn't give them political partisan positioning. He didn't give them philosophical musings and meanderings. He gave them the word of God. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. And what that does, whether humanity realizes it or not, is it scratches the deep inner longing and itch for truth. It cuts through all the noise in the culture, in the media, all the lies that we've heard, that we believe, and it begins to address that deep, deep longing for truth. Acts 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and able to pierce into the deepest components of who we are. And the word of God then, for God's people, reorients our mind, our hearts, and ultimately our lives around Jesus. So that's what the apostles' teaching would have been, teaching from Holy Scripture about Jesus. And the apostles' teachings later on became some of the New Testament. Some of their teachings became some of the New Testament, which we now study and preach as well. So then, we, as a new community of Jesus, continually devote ourselves to the Bible. That's what the text is teaching us. We continually devote ourselves to the Bible. So that's why when you come on a Sunday and we gather in a large group, we will preach the Bible for about 53 minutes today because it's central. They continually devoted themselves to that. But again, it wasn't enough for them just to do it on the Lord's Day. They were continually devoted. This is not only what the church gathering looks like, this is what devotion looks like in the life of the believer. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness, the lair of lies, and we have been brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we now long for truth. We are nourished on truth. The truth of the Word of God is like water to our souls, and we want something that cuts through all of the noise and the falsehood, something that rises above all the other truth claims because Christ is risen, and we come to the inerrant, authoritative, powerful Word of God. And so we read our Bibles on Monday, dude. Bro, sis, that's what Christians do. Like you went to church on Sunday, you're like, I'm good. You're not good. Man, you need truth on Monday. You need truth on Tuesday. You need truth on Wednesday, right? God's people reorient themselves around things that have meaning. The word of God has meaning. The spirit of God leads the people of God to the word of God. Secondly, fellowship. Fellowship. The word in Greek, as you know, is koinonia. It means to have in common, to share, to participate. 
And the reason that fellowship was so important for the early church and for the church is because what we have in common is worth rallying around. Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, right? We have this commonality. We are now all sons and daughters of God through Christ, right? The metaphor, one of the metaphors in the New Testament for the church is that it's the body of Christ and Christ is the head of the body and we're all parts of the body. So if we're all parts of the body connected to the head, we are subsequently connected to one another. It's an inescapable, beautiful truth. And so what they devoted themselves to was continual fellowship, participation in and with one another. And this itches the scratch or scratches the itch for the desire for connection. And we're created for connection. God has existed in eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a community. God has existed in that community in eternal love forever. And we are made in the image of God, which means that we were made for community and love within community. First with God and then then also with one another. We were made for community. So if we don't get that, then something is awry and our lives begin to go awry. And again, I don't think that we find this need being answered in the pseudo overconnectivity of our culture today. We think that connectivity is like, if I put everything that I'm doing on here and enough people like it, and then I see everything, then I'll be connected. But that leaves us empty. That leaves us wanting. That leaves us restless still. These things are answered in true community around something that provides meaning, which is Jesus. You know what's not meaningful? Everything that you do all day long that you post about tirelessly. That's actually not meaningful. You say, but I got like 13 comments on that post. They only commented so that more people would click on them and follow them. This is not true meaning. You know what's meaningful? Jesus. So the soul and the heart and the substance of our lives is not about us and what we do, but about Jesus and what he's done. And because we are those who've been saved by Jesus and what he's done, then we radically reorient ourselves around Jesus. John, who was there this day, would later on write in one of his epistles, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not have love remains in death. John said, one of the measures of our salvation being born again, having true life and abundant life and eternal life is that we actually love each other. Haven't you discovered that in the church? Isn't that kind of a creepy thing? Like, don't you, like, you're in the church and you love people that you normally never, ever would have loved? You know what I'm saying? Or are you playing? You know what I'm saying? Like, I come into the church, I'm like, these are not my people, but these are my people. I love these people. I love that dude. I love that girl. But if it wasn't for Jesus, we probably never even would have crossed paths with one another. We wouldn't even want to be in the same room. Now we're like, I love you, bro. How many times do you say that on a Sunday? I found myself saying it through the week. It's almost creepy, like in a coffee shop. I was in the Lucky Llama on Saturday, and uh, this guy came up to me. He's an old surfer guy. And uh, he came up, and he's like, he knows me from the surf world. He's like, dude, I heard you, like, preach the Bible and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do that. And he's like, 
well, when do you do that? I was like, yeah, down at Reality Sundays. This was Saturday. So I was like, yeah, tomorrow. You want to come tomorrow? He's like, yeah, I'll come tomorrow. And he was actually here at first service. He came tomorrow. But like, I said that to the guy. And then at the end, like, he's like, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. I was like, okay, I love you, bro. Like, what is this thing in me that wants me to say to this guy, Lucky Lama, like, I, like nobody does that. Don't even do that. <laughs> the evidence of Christ's life in us is that we love one another. For God so loved us. Salvation that we've received causes us to do so. The next thing that we see that they're continually devoted to is the breaking of bread. And again, in this context, it's the Lord's Supper. Here's what's going on here. Here's why they are continually devoted to the Lord's Supper. Because that was a way in which, in, in which they kept the work of Jesus on their behalf central. Right? What is the Lord's Supper about? The bread which signifies his body broken for us and the wine that signifies his blood poured out for us for the, for, for the covenant of the forgiveness of sins. What that signifies is Jesus' work for us on the cross. So by keeping it as a regular thing that we're devoted to, it keeps the cross central in our gatherings as the church and in our lives as believers. We need to keep the cross central. It's not about all these other things that we might make it about. It's not about the gifts and it's not about soteriology. It's not about all these different things that we get excited about. It is about the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And this was their effort to keep the cross central. Right? We have Paul talking about Jesus in communion in, where is it, Jen? First Corinthians. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember it to me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever, and then Paul comments and says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus himself told us that we are to do this as a way of remembering him and the work that he did on our behalf on the cross. That's why every single week we have communion here for believers to be able to come up to the Lord's table, so to speak, and take communion. By doing so, we're remembering what Jesus did for us. What this does is get at that deep human longing for forgiveness. It is the reminder that through the cross of Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. And so we are freed from shame. But it is also the reminder that because we have been forgiven so much, we ought to then forgive one another. Jesus says, as you have been forgiven, forgive one another. He taught us to pray that way. Forgive our debts as we forgive those who have debted debtors, whatever. Jesus taught us to pray this way. So then it frees us from our bitterness because within the power of the cross, there is provision to forgive. And nothing holds us in bondage and grinds us down like our own unforgiveness. 
And the gospel teaches us that because we have been forgiven in Christ, we can now be helped by Christ to forgive those who have deeply wounded us. And in that is true freedom. And it gets to that deep, deep human longing to be forgiven and to be able to forgive. That's only through the cross. That's why we keep the cross central by always keeping the Lord's table open and here. That's why we come and we do it. We're continually devoted to doing this because in so we remember what Jesus has done for us and we proclaim his death until he comes. And the face of sin and the accusations of the enemy and the wiles of the world against us, we say, no, Jesus died for me. Therefore, I'm forgiven and I have new life. It's a powerful proclamation. So we keep it central. The final thing that they devoted themselves to continually was prayer. And we've already seen in the book of Acts that Jesus' followers were devoted to prayer. And we need not belabor the point here because we will see as we journey through the book of Acts that they continue to be devoted to prayer. And the essence of what's going on there is that this was their endeavor, their effort to remain dependent upon God. Again, this addresses that falsehood of humanity that says, what I want is to be independent of God. What I want is autonomy. I'm going to create my own future and be the captain of my own ship. And when we do so, we find ourselves empty. What we were created for was to be dependent upon the creator. We were created to worship the one who is the ultimate and final authority. And so when we keep prayer central, it reminds us that we are contingent creatures. We are contingent upon Christ and his love and his sustaining work in our lives. We are finite, we're reminded. He is infinite. We are in need and he is our provider. Lest we forget it then, a devoted life in a Christian and the communal life of the church looks like a devotion to prayer where we are confessing that we are contingent creatures in need of God and his help. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 18 that we ought to pray always and not lose heart. That we ought to pray always and not lose heart because you know what? In this lifetime, it's easy to lose heart. It seems like, I just turned 46 this year, it seems like the older you get, the more disappointments you have, the more heartbreak you have. I don't know, is that true? Old people, tell me. Is it going to keep going like this? It's easy to lose heart, but we have an incredible resource in coming to God in prayer where we find help in the time of need. So we keep that central. We keep that central. That's why we have like prayer meetings in reality all the time. That's why the week leading up to Easter, we prayed all the time. That's why today at the end of the sermon, you guys are going to pray with one another about some of this stuff. It says we are dependent upon God. We need his help. We are contingent creatures. He is the infinite loving creator. These were the things that they were devoted to, continually devoted to. And you know, I'm sure that they had to fight for them at time. I'm sure their lives were very much like our lives. To be devoted literally means to cling faithfully to. That word cling denotes that there's some sort of force that is tearing you away. Throughout history, there have always been forces that wanted to tear the church away from the centrality of Scripture. 
and Scripture being taught as a final and full authority in the church. There has always been forces that were trying to pull the church away from the centrality of the cross. Forces that would pull us away from loving one another and divide us. Forces that would pull us into bitterness and unforgiveness. They were continually devoted. They were clinging faithfully to these things. I'm sure that as time, at, at times, they as a church had to fight for them. Someone would come along and say, well, let's talk about this thing. No, let's talk about the Bible thing. Well, I don't like so-and-so. Let's divide with these people. No, what unites us is greater than anything that can divide us. Let's have fellowship around Jesus. Well, let's make it all about the gifts. and this. Sh- no, we're going to make it about Christ's cross and what he's done for us. Well, we don't really need to be a church that prays because God's just going to do it anyway. No, we are a church that prays because the early church who was closest to Jesus in proximity and time, they prayed their faces off. They had to fight for these things at times and we're going to have to fight for these things as well. Corporately as a church and individually in our own lives, when you wake up tomorrow morning, there is going to be a hard pull away from Scripture and the cross and prayer and loving your brothers and sisters. Jesus is bigger than that hard pull. Keep these things central. In these things is meaning. Because these things are about Jesus. As I said, they're not ends in and of themselves. They're means, practices, rhythms by which we experience more of Jesus. And this is what a spirit-filled church looks like. Don't forget the whole thing is Pentecost. It was Pentecost, right? So the Spirit just came upon... I love you guys. First service, totally foibled, bumbled that, fumbled that one. You guys did it so good. The Holy Spirit had just come upon the church. So they're now full of the Holy Spirit. This is what a Spirit-filled church looks like. You might be saying, well, it looks like this, and it's about that, and this, and the other. No, dude. It's about the centrality of the word of God, the cross of Christ, the love of the brethren, and dependence upon God in prayer. That is a spirit-filled church. And that's what the spirit-filled believer then looks like. And there will be certain results then of these regular rhythms and practices and things that we're devoted to. Notice some of these results. Verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. In the early church, there were signs and wonders happening. I believe theologically that signs and wonders still happen. I believe that here they performed a certain certain function to authenticate the message of the apostles. We now have the complete New Testament. That does not mean that God stopped doing signs and wonders. God continues to do signs and wonders. We are told about them in the New Testament and throughout Scripture. So we still expect God, because he never changes, to do signs and wonders. The early church experienced a lot of them. Paul even had a hanky later on that if people touched it, they were healed. (laughs) It's in the book of Acts. Check it out. I don't know, you can try it. It's all sweaty and I have poison oak right now, but you can. (laughs) All kidding aside. Signs and wonders. Another way to say that is that they were in the midst of their lives together, experiencing a lot of the power and the presence of Jesus working amongst them. 
I just want to say, as a church, as a member of this church, I want more of the presence and power of Jesus working among us. I want to see more of God's power on display. Not because it's about those things, but because it's about Jesus. And when we see Jesus in the Bible, he's doing crazy stuff. Right? Like when the disciples came to him and they're like, hey, there's 5,000 guys here and all the girls and kids and we got nothing to feed them. Jesus wasn't like, well, the in and out truck will be a reality in 2,000 years. So <laughs> Jesus like multiplied the bread and the fish. When the storm was threatening their lives, Jesus wasn't like, well, you know, I mean, storms happen, dude. You gotta, like, he was able to calm the storm. Like Jesus has all authority and there are too many people in our body suffering with sickness. I want to see more of the power of God poured out on our church. Not that we might say, look, but that Jesus would be glorified. That's all I'll say about that. The next outflow of their devotion that we see was not only signs and wonders, but it was intense generosity. Look at these next couple of verses. Verse 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The early church, the new community of Jesus, trying to figure out what it looked like to follow Jesus as an outflow of their rhythms and disciplines and practices had this intense generosity. The root word in Greek, koinos, from which we get our word koinonia, which talks about our fellowship, is the same root word that forms the Greek word generosity. Koinokikos. Because fellowship within the church, within the community of believers, is not merely about what we share in. It is also about what we share out with one another. We share in this fellowship because we're all in it together as followers of Jesus and we share out of what Jesus has given us with one another. Jesus prayed that we would have this intense unity. Notice it says that they had all things in common. Remember in John 17 when Jesus prayed this? I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. We're included in that. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus prayed that we would have this radical oneness that would be a witness in the world. And the way this oneness was playing out in the early church was that they were sacrificially giving to those within the church who had need. It says there in verse 46 that people were selling their stuff and then giving to those who were in need. And it wasn't organized, it was organic. It wasn't from compulsion, it was from compassion. It wasn't about some law, it was love. Because of the love that they had experienced from God in Christ, they loved each other in a way which is now sacrificial. 
The great generosity they experienced through the cross caused them to be very generous with one another. So much so that they had all things in common. People were selling their stuff and giving it away. Now, if you take the Bible seriously at all, as we do, these are disturbing verses. And we have to ask ourselves, do they mean that every church and every Christian is supposed to do this? Sell all your stuff and bring it to a common fund and we all have all things together. And if we look at church history at different times and different places, there have been some who thought so and so done so. I mean, they did it. The early church did it. So should we do it? Well, we have to look at the whole of Scripture. We always interpret Scripture with Scripture. And there's nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament, in the words of Jesus or in the words of the Apostle, where we are forbidden to have private property. There's nowhere that forbids that. We actually see at times that God gave lots of private possessions to certain people who were his followers. There's nothing that forbids that. There's nothing in Scripture that says that's a bad thing or looks down on that. In fact, we see in the second part of verse 46 that they were eating together in their homes, which necessitates that some of them still had homes. So not everybody was selling all their stuff and giving it to those in need. And if they had homes and they had people in their homes to eat, then they had the accoutrements of home. They had some tables and some chairs and some food and a place to wash your feet and all these other things. So even this church that was practicing that still had private property. So that what they were doing in verses 45 and 46 was entirely voluntarily, voluntary. Selling and giving. Moreover, those two verbs... They sold and they gave. In the Greek language, are they in the imperfect tense? Which means that they were occasional, not continual. And we're told what the occasion was. It was when somebody in the body was in need. So this is not a once and for all, Christians must do, sell all your stuff and give it to everybody in the church or you're not a Christian. That's not what the Bible is teaching here. It is teaching that sometimes there were needs that had to be met and they were met through the body of Christ because they loved one another and they'd been given so much in the cross of Christ that they're willing to give. You see, our culture tells us that you are somebody when you have a certain logo on your car and a certain address on your mailing envelope and certain logos on your clothes, then you're somebody. But that's not what makes you somebody. What makes you somebody is that Jesus Christ loves you and gave himself for you, that you a sinner might be forgiven of your sins and have new life and eternal life. That's what informs our identity and who we are. And because we've been given everything that we need in the love of Christ, then we can give away to those in need because of the love of Christ. That's what was going on here. But even though, I I just kind of sort of through good exegesis let you guys off the hook of that text, but that's not my intention. Even though this selling and giving of property was and is meant to be voluntary, I think we all need to heed the challenge of the text. 
and hear the call to generosity. Because God has been generous with us in Christ. The principle there was giving to anyone who had need. Now we do that as a church. We have what we call benevolence ministry and a benevolence fund. And oftentimes people in the church or even the community come to us and say, hey, I can't make my rent. Or I can't cover this expense. Or I need help in this area or whatever it is. And we have a process through which they go. But then we happily provide for people in that way as a church, as a whole, large gathering. We do that. We give away thousands of dollars every single month to people that are just in need within the body. It's our joy to do that because the early church did that. That's part of what we ought to do. but this is not only corporate, this is also individual, then I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, as individuals, how are we meeting the needs around us? Because not everybody in the body that's in need is willing to walk through the office doors and say, here's my need, can I talk to somebody about benevolence? You know who they are. They live in your neighborhood. They come into your homes. They're in your workplace. They're friends with you. You see them at men's group. You see them at the women's Bible study. You know they have need. So in what way would you then be willing to meet those needs that are around you? And the Christian ideal is to do so with generosity, which means to give sacrificially. Generosity is to give sacrificially. Even when we ourselves are in need. It says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. Jesus knew something we need to learn. That we discover true joy in the giving of ourselves. You see, our world has lied to us. And we think that if we preserve ourselves and we always accumulate possessions and we have more and we keep more, then in that place is joy. Jesus taught us something different. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. He knew that in giving himself, there would be joy on the other side. The gospel teaches us something deeper, that we do not have to keep everything, but can give something to those in need. And I just think that we need to reorient ourselves around that truth in which we find meaning and true joy in the image of Jesus. And in hearing the challenge of those verses, I just want to say, and as the mouthpiece and part of the face of this church, I'll take a lot of this heat, but anyone in our body that is in need and not being provided for is a standing rebuke to us as a church. We ought to just be caring for one another in that way. It is the responsibility and the joy of the new community of Jesus, of spirit-filled believers to meet the needs of those who are in hard places. And we've got to do that all together. Here's where we end. The last verse, verse 47. We saw that signs and wonders were an outflow of their devotion. Generosity was an outflow of their devotion. And now we see that evangelism is an outflow of devotion. And this will be a very short point, I promise. Stick with me. Can you give me five more minutes? All right. Is it hot in here? I'm hot and I have the worst case of poison oak. You know when you're hot and sweating and you have poison oak? You know about that? Oh, help me, Jesus. Verse 47. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The whole picture of this early church is incomplete without verse 47. They were not just gathering together, they were scattering on mission. This is part of our self-identity as a church. We have to understand. Give me four and a half more minutes. The church 
gathers together and the church scatters on mission. That's what it is to be a people following Jesus. We gather together. Jesus creates in our midst a centripetal force, right? It pulls toward the center. Who's at the center? Jesus. And Jesus creates a centripetal force on his people. So we want to like come together around to and for Jesus. We gather together. But then Jesus also has a centrifugal work in our lives. He spins us out into our community on mission. So part of what it is to follow Jesus is to gather together and then to scatter in the community. This church was not so obsessed with their prayer meetings and their Bible studies and their fellowship times that they forgot about being witnesses. They were witnesses, right? Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come and you shall be my witnesses. The whole point of the gig is to take this wonderful news about Jesus to those who need to hear it. And praise God, the early church was doing that. They realized that to be the church was to be a missionary people. Here's a little quote about this. The book of Acts is governed by one dominating, overriding, and all-controlling motif. This motif is the expansion of the faith through missionary witness and the power of the Spirit. Restlessly, the Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually churches rise out of that witness. The church is a missionary church. You see, the beauty of it is, is if we give ourselves to those things that we're be, to be continually devoted to, the word of God, fellowship, the cross as being central, prayer, it will have this effect in our lives where we are witnesses for Jesus. Now, I'm sure that everybody in here feels guilty, first for their lack of generosity, and second for their lack of witness. So let me help you for a moment. Notice what it says at the very end there. It says in verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily, those who are being saved. The onus of the work is on Jesus. Jesus is the only one who saves. Jesus does the work of saving. It says here that Jesus gets the credit. The Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Salvation is always a work of God. But if I know God, it seems that throughout the Bible and throughout history, he's always chosen to work through his people rather than independent of his people. So we're part of that equation. And that's not a bummer, man. It's a beautiful thing to take the good news about Jesus as sent people. Jesus said, his father sent me, I sent you into our local community and the global community. Right? Because Romans breaks it down very clear and says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. And brothers and sisters, we are a sent people. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I also send you. God, please God, give us beautiful feet. Give us beautiful feet. The world lies to us and tells us that to share the good news about Jesus is narrow and that that it's mean, that, that it's oppressive, that it's outdated. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says it's beautiful and that the feet of those who bring good news are beautiful. May we please God as reality have beautiful feet. So I want us to practice what we preach at least in part and pray now 
about these things. So that's how we'll end, is you guys praying together. We'll put four prayer points up that pertain to what we've talked about. You might want to pray for one or all of these with someone, a radical reorientation around Jesus, more of Jesus' power and presence in our midst, an explosion of Christ-like generosity, a joyful boldness with the good news about Jesus. So let's just be a church that prays and uh, go ahead, take like five minutes. If you're not comfortable praying with someone, pray by yourself. That's totally cool. God hears that too, but it's rad to pray with people. So pray for one or all of those things.